0: is Me, Myself and Disaster. The show all about disasters with a human focus. From hurricanes to humanitarian issues, we journey across fault lines to explore trends in disaster preparedness, response and recovery. Over to you, Josh and Andrew. Hello and welcome back to Me, Myself and Disaster the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus Preparing communities for future disasters and influencing behaviour change in individuals is work often gone unseen by many in society The United States of America has seen its fair share of disasters from hurricanes and tornadoes to flooding and wildfires but how are they preparing their communities for the
1: unimaginable? Andrew, Andrew, Who's joining us on the show today? Josh, today we're joined by Aaron Levy and Sean Lenore from FEMA. Aaron is the director of FEMA's Individual and Community Preparedness Division, where he leads the agency's efforts to help people prepare for disasters. Aaron has deployed across the country in response to disasters, and prior to joining FEMA, worked as an advisor to two members of Congress. Sean is the director of FEMA's National Exercise Division, which conducts exercises across government and with communities to validate readiness and assess capabilities. Sean's career has spanned many roles across Homeland Security, the White House, and the U.S. Army, where he received the Presidential Service Badge. Check out the full bios for Aaron and Sean on our website. Today, we'll be discussing how FEMA is preparing American communities for the disasters of tomorrow and how they're looking to community participation as a method of empowering communities to mobilize in response to disasters and shifting social risk contracts. This conversation is one that you don't want to miss as we
0: discuss the big issues here on Australia's Leading Disaster Podcast. Let's get into it.
2: Aaron and Sean, welcome to Me, Myself and Disaster. Hey, it's Sean. It's great to be here. I'm super excited. Yeah, hey guys, this is Aaron. Really
3: excited, Andrew and Josh. We've been looking forward to this. Thanks for having us.
1: Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, I want to start with the recent hurricane. So Hurricane Ian, it's a timely reminder of the impact of severe weather events and the consequences they have on communities. In that disaster, 157 people died with a damage bill expected to exceed $50 billion US dollars. And the scale of this type of disaster, it's, it's hard to comprehend how big it is. But what can we do now to better prepare people for a similar weather event if this is to occur again in the future?
3: First, guys, really appreciate the question. This is Aaron here. Um, Again, for your listeners, I'm Aaron Levy. I'm the director of the Federal Emergency Management Agency's Individual and Community Preparedness Division. Great to be here with you guys and great to be joining my buddy Sean before he jets off to Mexico for a warm (laughs) vacation. He's very lucky. I'm going to rub that one in. I have to go see my (laughs) in-laws in in North Carolina. My mother-in-law will listen to this and I'll tell you. Hello. I
2: can't wait to see you, Sandy. It's my last work of the day. It's his last work of the day. Like, well, shout out to your mother-in-law, Aaron.
3: <laughs> no, 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 no I, I have to say I married very well. I married above my station in life, and I, I really looked down the in-laws department. My wife, not so much. Um, but Jim, this was a, you know, we, this was a serious question, and fifty billion dollars is isn't a small number. So here's what we know: mm. weather events and disasters like Ian are, are becoming more severe and more frequent due to climate change. Stop. Um, You know, at FEMA, our core belief is that preparedness for disasters is the shared goal of an entire nation. Most disasters begin and end locally. Individuals and communities at the local level will best understand the unique needs, opportunities and risks they face. I'm in the empowerment business, so our job is to empower these individuals and communities to know their hazards think about their needs, and as we like to say here, make a plan and take action to prepare. So we need to be in a position where we're giving folks the resources to know what disasters and hazards could affect their area, how to get emergency alerts, and where to go if they and their families need to evacuate. It's also important, and I think this is what I wanna credit President Biden for, and Administrator Criswell, we need to empower individuals and communities to make plans. If a disaster strikes, they need to know how they will contact their families, where to go, how to reconnect if they're separated. We also have to emphasize equity when providing resources to assist in disaster planning. Your plan or Sean's family plan may differ from your neighbor's plan and those from other communities. But I think as emergency managers, we must provide the resources to enable people from all walks of life to achieve positive outcomes in response and recovery to disasters. You know, gentlemen, what I like to think about is if you're an upper middle class family or if you're a wealthy family, you're getting in your SUV, you know, you're getting a warning if it's it's a disaster that there's actually a warning that you're receiving from the National Weather Service here in the States or local authorities, you're piling the kids in, you're driving out of the disaster zone, you're getting a hotel, you're staying at Aunt Jane's house, whatever that might be. What's keeping us up at night is the folks who don't have the ability, the capacity, or the resources to evacuate. And I think our administrator is continuing to emphasize the importance of supporting equity after seeing firsthand the effects of disasters like Hurricane Ian and after listening to lessons learned from international partners, including our friends in Australia and elsewhere, that that building equity into the assistance we provide for individuals and communities is a continuous process that all FEMA offices, including mine and including Sean's, are are constantly striving to, to lead the way in.
0: So th- I think that's a really interesting notion around um, this equity piece. And I think, I think it's fascinating in, in kind of the, of, of, the, of the American kind of context because, you know, our listeners would well know that your government is, is huge and, and that is, you know, you know, this, this issue of equity is one that sits outside of disasters as well, right? Like disasters just just enhances and amplifies issues in society. And, and this, this notion of equity is a big one. So what are you guys practically kind of doing in FEMA to address some of those issues in the disaster context around equity?
3: Yeah, that's a good one. Let me give you a perfect example, one that I absolutely love. So FEMA's in the business of pr- meeting for individuals. You know, if you think about the assistance programs we provide after a disaster, there's assistance that we're giving to ind- individuals and then there's assistance that we're giving to local governments, our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners. So let me talk about the individual piece, our individual assistance. What we're realizing, gentlemen, in a lot of parts of this country, is sometimes people will inherit a home from their parents who inherited it from their grandparents, who inherited it from their great-grandparents, and when that home is destroyed in a hurricane, let's say on the coast of Florida, or in the bayou in Louisiana near New Orleans, they don't have the normal proof of ownership that I might have saved in my drawer at home, right? The deed to a house, let's say, which is something that's really common for me. But if you've lived in this house, for six or seven generations, you don't know where the the deed is. So what we've done under the administrator's leadership is we've made it easier, we've made some policy changes to make it easier for folks like that to be able to show other forms of paperwork, for lack of a better term, so we could give them individual assistance. It might be showing a couple of months worth of utility bills. And even if you don't have those bills on file, you can call the water utility or the electric utility, get copies of those bills. And now our team here at FEMA We will take those as proof of ownership for your house. It's not fair that someone in an underserved community who's lived in a home for several generations gets their home destroyed and suddenly they can't get assistance for their uninsured needs from us because they can't find the deed to their house and what could have been the worst day of their lives. So that's one, of I think, a great example of some changes that we've made that aren't just bureaucratic changes here in Washington, the creation of work groups and panels and convenings, but really focuses on something that affects individual Americans.
2: Yeah, and this is Sean. I mean, I'd like to add, you know, on top of what Aaron said, uh, so great to be here. I'm Sean Lenore. I'm the FEMA National Exercise Division Director. Um, You know, and, and, and a caveat or an additional comment to that is, is that, you know, we here at FEMA have transitioned and begun to focus on Underserved communities, marginalized communities, uh, using social vulnerability index. So when we talk about equitable, we know that equal is not equitable. They do not mean the same thing, right? And so we know that there has been, uh, you know, through every generation, as Aaron is referring to, not the same type of response, not the same type of support uh, given to those various communities. And it's really understanding that dynamic of have we identified who these communities are? Have we identified who our partners are? down at the state, the local, even at the tribal level, and to ensure that all of those who are survivors are getting the assistance that they need. And you know, basically they're not one monolithic block and they all have different needs and different challenges uh, based on their social economic conditions and other factors. And the fact that we're recognizing that I think is, 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 is great for the future to ensure that everybody is receiving equity under response and recovery.
1: That's really great, and I think what we're doing in in Australia, we've seen recently we've had these shocking floods that have continued now with three La Nina um, weather systems for now three years in a row, and so lots of parts of Australia have flooded, and we're seeing this as unfortunately very unequal in terms of there's there's flooding that's impacting those low lying areas, and everyone who lives in a low lying area um, is often on the on the lower socio economic end of the scale compared to those who are on the hills and the higher areas, and we're finding Finding that insurance in many ways really helps people to build back and to have that level of resilience and financial resilience that those who don't have insurances don't have. They're stuck, they rely on government support, um, they can't rebuild as easily. But we're finding now that a lot of those areas that have flooded, premiums are about 20, 30 grand a year. People can't afford that. So even if you're, even if you're sort of wealthy, 30 grand a year for insurance is a lot. People just don't want to take that risk. So what Well, I guess what's happening in the United States in terms of insurance, do you see those same challenges in terms of the uninsurable becoming a larger part of the population? And how do we work with those communities that can't get insurance to actually build their own resilience? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll take this question in two parts. So I think
3: you all just identified something that I think many countries throughout the world are facing, which is regarding how are you... How are you measuring risk, right? So, not to get all wonky here, but I think, gentlemen, what you just described is really how do we measure risk, and how do we pass the costs on for that risk to the people who reside in whatever country you might live in? So, I know for us, we have the National Flood Insurance Program in the United States, which is I like FEMA is the financial backstop to the program, Um, but you know most people buy their flood insurance through insurance companies, through some of our big private sector insurance companies here in the United States, and this huge debate that is continuously going on in the halls of our, our Congress, our parliament, um, to, to use the analogy and in the private sector and in government is, you know, should people be paying for their actuarial risk? Can you make the program actuarially sound? And if you do that, you know, going back to some of the communities that, that, that Sean talked to, You're going to be in a position where you're going to have people who are living in floodplains that are severe, repetitive flood areas who are going to see their insurance rates skyrocket through the grounds, going from hundreds of dollars a year to tens of thousands of dollars a year. And I don't think there's a local elected official or a state elected official or a federal elected official or even civil servants like us that want to see that happen. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to help those communities buy down their risk. And one of the ways that we're doing that is through a program called the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities Program, or the BRIC program. So this is something that, one thing I got to give our Congress credit for is when it comes down to FEMA, in the aftermath of every major disaster, Congress usually comes through, Sean's nodding along, and gives us new authorities and new capabilities to try and help those communities better. So I want to give Sean the chance to jump in here, but what I would say, here's the summary. The BRIC program, again, Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities, this is designed to support states, local communities, tribes, and territories. The program seeks to shift the federal focus from reactive disaster spending towards research-supported, proactive investment in community resilience. So when a hurricane, flood, wildfire, extreme heat, or other disaster occurs, communities are more resilient. Um, BRIC incentivized mitigation investments that reduce risk and increase mitigation, including expanding the use of insurance to manage risk through funding mitigation projects, particularly ones that reduce risk to infrastructure. And just for example, in in fiscal year 2021, um, 360 applications were selected, totaling $65.7 million across 53 states. States and territories, and that's just the beginning. Um, In this last fiscal year, gentlemen, we're due to distribute hopefully up to 2.3 billion. So again, not an easy answer for the insurance problem, but we're trying to do is use these new funding and new authorities that our Congress gave us to help those communities buy down risk.
2: Yeah, and I think you know, Aaron, to your point, when we talk about you know what, I'll I'll say what assistance were provided, what tools and resources were provided uh, by Congress and in our country. You know, I want to focus on the, F- the FEMA flood mitigation assistance program. Um, this a- this program annually will provide an alternative revenue for communities in the build back better. Um, this is going to include 3.5 billion in funding over the next five years being available. And within the infrastructure investment and jobs act, this not only increased the yearly assistance funding; it went from 160 million dollars to 800 million dollars uh, in annual funding. Uh, The Flood Mitigation Assistance is a competitive grant program, but it provides the funding to the states, to the local communities, and federally recognized tribes and territories to build back better at that $3.5 billion. Funds can also be used, which is this is an important part, for projects that reduce or eliminate the risk of repetitive flood damage to buildings insured by the National Flood Insurance Program. So this goes back to Aaron's great point about are you living in a high-risk community, high-risk area, and what does that look like for projects when we want to know that from a mitigation perspective, we want to reduce the likelihood, or if we can, eliminate altogether the risk of repetitive flood damage uh, to our buildings, and that is with new building codes that FEMA has rolled out recently and some other initiatives and really The intent here in America, you know, I believe is that we prepare our communities and we want to enhance our communities because at the end of the day, you know, whatever incident it is, is going to begin and is going to end at the community level. So from a federal government, the more, the more that we can do to prepare our communities and provide them with the support that they need, the more resilient they'll be.
0: Look, I am, I am extremely encouraged because this is a really hard conversation, right? I think, um, you know, th- there's some tough conversations that need to be had here in Australia and that, you know, our communities are going on now, especially in, in regards to flooding. So, you know, historically, we've got a lot of communities that for for whatever reason, you know, they reside on floodplains or they reside in high risk areas. There's this really interesting conversation playing out now going should we actually build here? Is it actually sensible to reside in these areas? Can we actually sensibly mitigate this risk? Is that you know? Is there an actual cost that we can that we'll accept as a community to mitigate that risk? And if we're not willing to accept that you know mitigation cost, then there's a really hard conversation that has to be had to say, well, maybe we actually shouldn't be residing in these areas, full stop. And it sounds like you guys are starting to you know approach that that conversation on that national level but I'd really like to unpack with you guys I know this is a, a massive one that I'm tying up into a really <laughs> tight little tiny question you here because this work. is a massive can subject work for <laughs> but but this notion of of head and heart this notion of engineering mitigation with behavioral change you know what is FEMA doing in this space to prepare communities because we just heard there around you know, funding mechanisms, um, hard infrastructure. But we often know, and I know you guys will really, you guys will know this well as well, that's only one part of the solution. Part of it is is obviously the heart piece and what we're doing to inspire behavioural change in our communities, how do you guys balance that priority in terms of built infrastructure, funding, big picture national projects with that kind of grassroots community level engagement? Go ahead, Sean. Go
2: ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll start off with this one. Um, so, you know, I'll speak specifically from a program we have in a National Exercise Division that we've been doing this last year and we'll do through the next two years. Um, so first I want to say, it's meeting communities where they are, right? So when we talk about risk, um, we talk about mitigations of hazard. It's really understanding not just the, the the geographical area that they're in, but it's also understanding the cultural area they're in. And I'll use our Climate Adaptation Exercise Series. So right now, the FEMA National Exercise Division um, has been implementing what we call the Climate Adaptation Exercise Series. It's a series of exercises across the 10 regions within the United States. Um, This year, thus far, we have completed exercises in Region 8, Region 7, Region 3, Region 5, Region 1, and they're all different from agricultural challenges to weather challenges, but we have some initiatives in our climate adaptation exercise series, and the first one begins with literacy, right? Can we all have a fundamental understanding of what those impacts are? And can we understand where they are in each community? Because they're different. They're not the same. You can't fit a peg in a round hole. The other part is the collaboration, right? We want to collaborate not just with our emergency managers, right, but all of our stakeholders and partners. So this would be our Environmental Protection Agency Uh, representatives. This would be our NOAA representatives, right? Ensuring that all of the stakeholders we have at the appropriate level is meeting the community where they are and then coming together and discussing solutions, right? And what do those solutions, solutions look like? And you particularly talked about from a flood perspective, right? So Are we elevating structures above what we know to be known flood levels uh, to prevent and reduce losses, right? That's something that was successful in the community in Florida during the last um, hurricane with Hurricane Ian. Um, Are we restructuring uh, damaged dwellings and ensuring that they're on elevated foundations so we can prevent... Uh, and reduce future flooding from inundation and things of that nature. So, you know, for me, I'll turn it over to Aaron, but it's really meeting communities where they are and understanding what their needs are. uh, And it needs to be fact-based, data-informed information um, so we can do appropriate mitigation planning. But it's really getting down in the community and meeting with them one-on-one and understanding what they view their risk to be, uh, despite all of the data and information you might have, is really getting to know them. But over to Aaron.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it. And guys, it's a great question. When you talk about behavioral change, you're you're speaking my love language, as I like to say. (laughs) And I think Sean, to to kind of pivot back off what Sean said, so what our division does in individual and community preparedness is I, I want you to think about this. The way I lead it is the way we view it. We want to come up with a menu of options that no matter what kind where you are in the country massive country very diverse 330 million american people no 330 million americans no one community is the same can I develop a menu of options that that local emergency manager or that community-based organization can pick off that menu and adapt that programming, training, exercises in Sean, in Sean's shop to adapt to their needs? So for example, you know we focus on youth preparedness. So how, am I, how are we engaging young people in this country so you're making that individual preparedness a part of your daily life? You're starting that behavioral change. And again, it's gonna sound like I'm trying to get in the minds of America's youth. That's not the goal at all, but trying to get <laughs> engaged early in preparedness activities in their community. We have a National Youth Preparedness Council. Some of our regional offices have have, have similar ones. Um, also, we have a training, which we're huge proponents of. What I like to tell people is there are people in every community who I call actually David Brooks, I should say, the the columnist for the New York Times calls community weavers. These are folks who run the nonprofit medical providers, the food banks, the homeless shelters, the libraries, the community college, the list can go on. These are institutions that on uh, blue sky days, as we call, when there's not a disaster, that many underserved folks from tribal country to inner city America to rural America are depending on for basic services, right? So what can we do to build capacity it amongst those organizations. So they're more resilient to disasters. And and we do this through our organizations preparing for emergency needs training. And this is training that provides these kinds of community organizations with the tools they need to prepare for disasters and sustain operations. You know, I have to say right before the pandemic and we launched the open training, um, I sat in a room in an old mill town in the, in Massachusetts of one of our states in the Northeast. And I literally saw people from all those organizations that I just mentioned, none of them talked to each other before. And the local food bank guy had no idea what his depend his interdependencies were to get supplies. Um, from distributors elsewhere in that state, um, the electric uh, provider wasn't aware of who in that community had generators, or the drinking water provider wasn't even aware who could have spare spare amount of drinking water. So, the more that we can get into those communities and preventing them, providing them those menus of options, um, that's the way we like to approach it. So,
1: the menu of options sounds like something that really resonates. Well, I mean, we can't. We've got obviously things that are going to be community focused, but having those sort of simple options sounds like a really good way of doing things. That's going to make note of that for sure. I want to touch on the community weaver stuff, and I guess this comes back to the menu as well, but often we see as a guiding light almost this sense that we have to do community-led or community-involved planning and exercising. It's often the way we sort of get community buy-in. But I want your thoughts on that because I know in Australia we've seen this um, happen regularly and we try and do a lot of this community-led planning and community-led exercising. But one thing is, I guess, there's a, there's a level of, well, how much does the actual community have in terms of their influence? We've seen communities recovering from a bushfire say, well, we must have a large swing pool in our town, or we need to have some sort of like Disneyland style theme park or whatever, because that's what they want. But is that necessarily good for their own sort of disaster recovery? So I guess how, how do you see in the United States that community led planning, community led exercising, community led ability to build resilience together with emergency management play out?
2: Yeah. So I'll, I'll take this one. This, um you know, when, I, when we talk about meeting communities where they are, um, you know, for us, it's not a tagline. So in the National Exercise Division, we offer technical assistance through a plethora of exercises. They can be discussion-based. They can be operations-based. They can be everything from a drill in a community to a full-scale exercise where we have, like, search and rescue and we have urban search and rescue Uh, in the full kit and caboodle in a simulated um, disaster. Um, But the first thing that we're going to do before we design an exercise is we're going to work with that community to find out, like, where are you in your integrated preparedness planning, right? So it's an integrated preparedness plan with their community that ensures that all the stakeholders and all the partners and all the resources are identified in an integrated preparedness plan for that community. And because, at least here in the United States, you know, us as a republic, right, with our federal, state, local, tribal jurisdictions and governments, it's all different, right? And so for us, it's really important that we go and meet with each stakeholder and partner. And within that jurisdiction, they have an emergency management office, they have an exercise officer. And so all of those key partners and stakeholders are part of the beginning of that discussion where whether we're talking about creating a plan, revising a plan, or during a discussion, and we view it as community-led, right? Here at FEMA in my program, Aaron's program, we are the technical assistance and we are providing the support. But as we say in America, all emergencies begin at the local level and they all end at the local level. So no matter how far they expand, um, you know, Hurricane Ian came through, we are in a massive recovery, but while many folks that deployed have returned to the DC area and other areas, it is those local communities that will be doing years, if not decades, uh, long recovery. So from you know my perspective, it's really about finding out what the community needs are. And you can only do that when you go meet the communities where they are, where you do the in-person collaboration. And it's a discussion, right? And it's a discussion about what resources do you have? What capabilities do you not have? What are the goals and the outcomes that you're actually trying to achieve uh, for your community. And it is truly a partnership.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think, Jeremy, to pivot off what Sean said, a former administrator of ours, he used to say... um, federally supported, state managed, locally executed. Right, I'm gonna drive that home. Federally supported, state managed, locally executed. And I think that is applicable throughout the entire emergency management cycle from preparedness and prevention to mitigation, response, and recovery. And I think whether it's it's Sean's program, um, which is helping to provide those exercise capabilities, my program, which is helping to build that community, you know, community preparedness and even preparedness for individuals, or even our response and recovery programs the the disaster responses and recoveries that I'll use the word successful because if if someone loses their life, it it wasn't successful for them. But for us at the FEMA level, if you look at our after action processes and Sean and I have a sister division in the national preparedness directorate that are the wonks at after action reporting, they'd probably love to talk to you guys. That could be a, that could be a whole month. (laughs) When we, we always use the 2017 hurricane season as a great example. Um, If you look at the response and recovery to hurricane Irma in Florida, or the response and recovery to Hurricane Harvey in Texas. You had well-trained well-equipped, well-funded, state, local, tribal, state, local, and tribal in those states capabilities that complemented the federal capability. In Puerto Rico, and again, you know, this is certainly not the faults of our brothers and sisters in, in, in Puerto Rico, they had not had the chance yet to build that capacity at the level of the, uh, uh, down on the island. And so what you see was the federal government in that case, they were, Doing all three parts of that. They were managing, supporting, and executing. And I know one of the things that, for example, that Sean's team has really invested in and my team is really invested in is being able to look at places like Puerto Rico and really helping those state and local emergency managers build that capacity through technical assistance, grant funding, and training. And I think what you saw, if you remember, like Hurricane Ian... Uh, it, hit, it, hit, it hit Puerto Rico first uh, It went through the Caribbean first and their response and recovery was so much better than it was in 2017. We're not taking credit for that. But what you saw was a whole of federal government approach along with our private and nonprofit partners in the interim between 2017 and 2022 to help that island get more capacity. And we are really proud of our partners in Puerto Rico for how much that they've improved. We provide t- technical assistance, money and support, but they put in the elbow grease and did the hard work.
2: Yeah, and another you know great FEMA story under the Building Resilient Infrastructure and Communities program, which Aaron referred to earlier in the brick. Um, you know, we could talk about the example in South Florida uh, water management. This was in the BRIC twenty one project. Uh, was focused on mitigating South Florida flood risk uh, with those living uh, in the levee and in the shoreline and pump station repairs. But this project in particular was located in basically one of the nation's most diverse and growing urban areas in the county of Miami-Dade. I mean, you don't get any more diverse, you don't get any more complex, uh, and you don't get any more urbanized in Miami-Dade County. Uh, But real estate development along the waterfront um, created high-risk flood zones for those communities within the city. Um, Obviously, rapid urbanization um, since the pandemic has put a lot of pressure on their current systems that they have in place. Uh, Making new repairs to existing structures uh, was needed for optimization. And they had extensive land development and population increases within that specific area Um, that were exceeding what the original design and assumptions of structures to mitigate against flooding. And then obviously when you add in the impacts from climate change uh, conditions such as rising sea level, uh, this limits flood protection operations. So what they did in the BRIC program is they focused on how to mitigate future damage in these highly populated areas. And the South Florida Water Management will install what is called a living shoreline to assist in reducing erosion, elevate and enhance canal banks construct a tieback levee to provide storm surge protection and replace a pump station that will convey floodwaters to tide when downstream water elevations are too high and allow gravity to flow. So, you know, what are the benefits, right? This project is going to maximize risk reduction benefits and co-benefits of both natural and nature-based solutions and such as short and long-term environmental, economic, and social, social advantages. But this overall improves that community, Miami Dade County's community's quality of life. It makes it more attractive for residents to move to and want to live there. It attracts more businesses because folks know I can move there and it's going to have the mitigation protection in place that it's, you know, it's not going to flood all the time. I mean, probably the last thing I say is, is that, you know, one of the things we have to deal with the increasing catastrophic uh, destruction and level of intensity of some of these events is, You know, we used to be accustomed to communities building back, Um, and that's a real challenge right now. Um, In Hurricane Ian, there are likely some, you know, there are likely some communities that may not build back because of the level of destruction, and that's just a real, you know, that's a, that's a real thing we have to be focused on. And that's a real thing we have to be aware of as we move forward uh, in this discussion.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I want to give you guys kudos because I think what you guys like this, this level of community involvement in planning and exercising really is, I think a Nirvana for our industry that a lot of people are sh- shooting for. And I think firstly for, for our listeners, I want to give them a shout of encouragement to keep going because as you guys are probably well aware, there's, there's two, there's two things. One, it's a, it's a long journey to partner with community. And go through this process, and it takes time to see the outcomes and the benefits. And you just got to keep going and, and believing in that process. But also, um, you know, there are probably some organisa- organizations out there that are starting to culturally shift themselves to understand that this is how we should be doing disaster management and we should be engaging with our communities and planning for future disasters through this community led lens. And I just want to um, point them to obviously, you, you guys have got a great uh, a program and, and on, a, on a great journey, uh, and there's also lots of other great examples out there. You know, New Zealand with their community safety hubs, really looking at how they can empower communities to be a part of that, um, you know, that disaster world. Because really, end of the day, disasters are the nexus of all things. Um, everything is going to come to a head in a disaster. And, and like you said, from private sector, community, government, everyone's going to have to pitch in and put their hand in. But Sean, m- maybe this question's... Um, more pointed to you, because I'm really interested because, you know, one of our former guests on the podcast was a former administrator of yours, uh, uh, Craig Fugate. And we had this interesting conversation with him around, you know, often when we do exercising, it's either a, uh, you know, that government centric problem solving model, or we're just testing our plans and we're not thinking of, you know, many of our listeners will know Mark Crosweller, um, who used to coin the term, you know, thinking about the unimaginable. How do you approach that with community in terms of that exercising space? Because obviously on one hand we need to make it really real and they need to have a a true appreciation for the risk that they face in their community. But on the other hand, we don't want to overwhelm them. So how do you approach that kind of um, exercising space where being realistic, uh, but still kind of approaching what is that unimaginable and kind of trying to get people to think outside of the box in that exercising space?
2: Yeah. So thanks for the question. Um, so one comment I'll make before I, I answer that question is I, I want to be real clear with Aaron, you know, and I here, you know, we're in DC, we're in headquarters, you know, we have the ability to go out and deploy and support disasters. But what we talked about meeting communities where they are, it doesn't work without our regional partners. So FEMA has a regional offices established across all of the states, tribes, and territories. There's 10 FEMA regions, and it's really our meeting the meeting the communities where they are it is the regions that are embedded with those states and with those local programs and they're they're there every day right so if you are in region 3 the region 3 headquarters is in philadelphia for the mid atlantic so as things that we're doing as an agency as a large 20,000 person agency it's really how dispersed we are and how decentralized we are across the states that enables fema to do its job because at that operational level Uh, And in that everyday touch point level, it's going to be the FEMA regions uh, that are touching points with all of our state, local, and tribal territorial partners. Um, And moving on to exercises, you know, one of the things I say about exercises is, you know, it provides an environment for you to basically do many things that you would like to do in a non-attributive and safe environment. Um, And so when we look at exercises in the National Exercise Division, there's a lot of factors that we look at when we are working with communities. Um, We're using our threat hazard identification uh, analysis. We're using our stakeholder preparedness review. As I said earlier, we're using social vulnerability index. We're using equity. We're using climate adaptation. Uh, marginalized, underserved communities. We're using different threats and different hazards, right? And that all goes into a methodology and modeling, you know, and it's real scientific stuff above Sean's head. But in the end, I've got really smart people on our team that provide that in a way where communities can absorb that information. And basically what it comes down to is in the national exercise program, which the FEMA NED division facilitates, um, Twice a year, communities across the U.S. are encouraged and motivated to submit for technical assistance. And the way that they do that is they go to our website. Uh, All the information is on the website. They're able to download a nomination form And jurisdiction X can say, hey, the the biggest threat that we have is our potential loss of power, right? And we want to do a blackout exercise. Um, And then working with that community, and let's just say in this particular case, it is um, a county within a state or a city within a state. Um, We're going to work with them over several months to find out, you know, where are they in their integrated preparedness planning? Where are they in their exercise plans? Where are they in their mitigation, right? And so we're going to look at a lot of different capabilities that they have and work with them to ensure what is desired outcome you're seeking. And so, you know, back to something you said earlier, um, plans. Um, There's a lot of different ways to look at plans. Uh, We can test a plan. We can examine a plan. We can explore a plan. And so we have a lot of different options here in our system where I'll just give you two extremes. If we wanted to test the Rhode Island Interoperable Plan, we could do that in a full-scale exercise where we've got people on the ground, we've got ambulances, we've got helicopters in the air. But let's say three years ago when Rhode Island started, they said, hey, we're drafting this new interoperable plan and we may do what's called a seminar, right? And that's where we're going to do a couple hours and bring in every single stakeholder from the state of Rhode Island, from all the counties and all the jurisdictions. And we're actually going to discuss this new plan, Uh, And then we might elevate that to the next step, which is a workshop and work through the plan and then so forth and so on as we progress uh, in series of exercises. So we we can do the full gambit. Uh, We can do from beginning end to end. We can do from middle to end. And, you know, exercises, and this will be my last point, is, you know, for us, United States, it's really the one way that we enhance preparedness because at the end of the day, we can go and pull those key outcomes from those exercises, which we determine is actionable, right? They're smart, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound, and they actually can be revised into a plan for a community to say, you might have, might not have thought about this shortfall, you might not have thought about this gap, um, but it's identified, everybody's agreed to it, um, and the community uses that to, to revise their plan and make it better, and it's a continuous process, which results in a more resilient community.
0: So just quickly there, you that start bit there where you talked about, and I think this is really interesting because for us in this industry, um, Failure is something we don't celebrate, right? Um, for us, we've been taught and we've been brought up in our industry and in our training that failure, you know, obviously when we're operational, uh, is non-negotiable. We, we don't want to fail. But this notion of then taking people in that, of that mindset, obviously in that culture going, there's a no fail culture in terms of when we're operational Uh, and and us as emergency managers. And I know there's probably many of you in FEMA that, you know, you really take that to heart. That's who you are at the core of your being. You you get into this industry because you want to, you want to help people. So it's this no fail culture, but then shifting them and putting them in an environment, in an exercising environment going, Hey guys, you you know, you can fail, fail, and failing is actually, you know, maybe we should celebrate that because we're actually learning in a safe environment and figuring out what we should be doing better. I think it was, um, I think it was Simon Sinek was talking about There's this. really interesting company uh, in America where they actually um, have champagne bottles in the office and they have failure written on the uh, on the front. And when they actually fail, um, they get the staff to turn it around and they write the lesson that they've learned through that failure and they celebrate it. So, what I'm really interested for you guys in FEMA. How do you kind of broach that in the exercising space to say it's it's okay to fail and it's actually you know kind of good to fail in this environment because we can explore what we're doing and where we can do things differently?
2: Yeah, I think that starts out with um, the message, right? The message and the communication from the beginning. Um, You know, a couple things we always look out for in exercises is a term I call success intoxication. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Oh, we got all the resources and everything that we said we were going to need in this notional hypothetical situation. Uh, We know in the real world, you know, we might have interoperable comms, but in the exercise, we're just going to gloss over that. Right. And so one of the ways you mitigate that in exercises is the communication from the beginning. Okay. Hey, here's plan X that we want to test. Okay. What do we want to test in plan X? Right. And it's the communication. communication of we want to break plan X, right? For lack of a better term, we want to ensure that this plan does all the things that it says it's going to do. Um, And then the messaging of what makes you successful today is not guaranteed or necessarily going to make you successful tomorrow. So while we all want to focus on being successful, um, exercise is the one environment in which we do get to throw in different types of what we call injects and shake up the scenario. Um, Sometimes it may be the the worst catastrophic event that's ever happened and You know, a city fell in the ground, for lack of a better term. But what we really want to do is we want to provide that stress point. Right. And we want to push the exercise practitioners to that stress point to get them to think about things that they haven't thought about before. So I'll give you a quick example. We did an exercise earlier this year uh, out in the Pacific Northwest. um, And it was an exercise with a down aircraft that, that landed in a river. Um, And one of the things I noted um, at the exercise during the the water rescue operations is, is that all of the water vessels pre-staged. So when we did the after action uh, review with the sponsor, the question I asked them is, we should have held those vessels for 10 to 15 minutes to simulate their travel time to the point of the crash. Because when the exercise started, they immediately went out to the site and began rescue operations. And that's not realistic. They were coming from different districts. They were coming from different parts of the county. Um, Some were as far away as 20 minutes, right? And so those are things that we can take back when we plan future exercises of that design and type. But it's also a point in the AAR to say, you do understand that these vessels would not have been on site this quickly and you would not have begun those rescue operations that quickly. And it's to point that out so that if there is somewhere in the plan that that needs to be addressed, it can be addressed.
3: Can I I give you maybe a 40? That was... Amazing detail. Can I maybe take this to the 40,000 foot level and how I think about that as emergency management as a profession? I'll do it in 60 seconds if that works. Go for it. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, I think both Sean and I, something that we both do is probably... We often talk with young people who are looking to get involved in this field, right? Unlike other fields that you might go into, in, in and we call the national security sphere in the United States, there's no, eg, entry point to emergency management. We might talk about that later. That everyone finds their way here through different paths, and I could talk about, you know, learning how to be a good writer, learning how to be a good planner, getting an expertise in operations planning, an expertise in logistics. What it all really comes down to, and this doesn't, this sounds a little fluffy, but bear with me, is your is communication communications and relationship building because here in the United States, um, Given the fact that, as I said before, successful emergency responses are so integrated with the federal, state, local, and tribal, ter- tribal and territorial level, the same goes with preparedness. A- and the work that our colleagues in the FEMA regions do on in steady state, enduring blue skies, with regional partners, and, and in my world, in community-based organizations, you know, there's that old adage in the United States, a local official never wants to hear, hi, I'm from the federal government and I'm here to help. Um, generally, that has almost a Pavlovian reaction amongst <laughs> (laughs) local officials throughout the country. Maybe it's similar in Australia, but but I think what we've learned over these last couple of years is, is through blue sky communications throughout the sphere of the emergency management cycle. When you create those relationships that that Homeland Security advisor in the state or the local emergency manager or the director of an influential community-based organization that let's face it there, if you're dealing in a, a place like Florida or New York city, I'm using urban examples. If you don't have the pastors, the rabbis, and the clergy in your corner during blue skies, and you're not bringing them into exercises, bringing them into preparedness activities, and making them feel comfortable in an, in, in an environment that might not that can be fail. You can fail there. They're going to make your life miserable during the gray and the black skies, and, and we've seen that happen. And I think one of the things that Sean is so good at doing, and his team are so good at doing, and his boss Aaron Hoffman, the, the one of our senior executives, is great at doing, is building those relationships of trust, so that when he's going and doing an exercise they know that FEMA' is not there to judge we're not you know we're not there to judge this isn't about a funding decision how you do we're there to create an environment that's that, that you can feel feel successful and failure in because we're here to you know and then I think that is such a huge part of what Sean does and his team does well and my team does to a point with community organizations
1: so. I know Josh is busting to ask a question but um, before he does I want to <laughs> want to jump in about <laughs> because as All exercising preparedness is done. We have a sort of – we're very well prepared for the next event. And then a major event like Hurricane Harvey happens and Texas is slammed. In that one, we saw the Cajun Navy um, really become very active and do a lot of life-saving rescues. One thing we've seen here recently is the tinny army is what they call everyone getting their boat, same sort of concept. The spontaneous volunteers come down and help. And I love spontaneous volunteers. It's something I ask a lot of our guests about on this show. It's a challenge that's going to get bigger and bigger. As you say, there's bigger and bigger disasters and climate change and everything else. What's the US doing? And, and I guess what are organisations there like Team Rubicon and the CERT program? What's everyone doing to prepare for spontaneous volunteers? And this community activation, community mobilisation becoming more frequent and seeing more of this happening where it outstrips the or the disasters outstrip the existing resources and emergency services and first responders we have to rely on communities to do some of that work where it's just not possible to get more and more people in there as, as soon as it needs to happen. That That's a great question I'll, I'll take this one and obviously invite Sean to jump in. You will find no
3: larger proponent uh, of community emergency response teams or CERT teams I, I think in, in the US emergency management community than yours truly um, You know, I have the, the privilege one of the, the programs that my team works on, fellas, is helping to develop um, training modules, both virtual and in-person for CERT teams. We've helped to get the National CERT Association off its feet um, so they can begin to really think of themselves not as a, a disparate group of teams because most of these teams are connected to local firehouses, local emergency managers. And, and so much of the capability of each of these teams is really linked to how much that local emergency manager that local fire chief wants to invest in them. So one of the things that we did, and again, I think the listeners of your podcast as fellow emergency management wonks will appreciate this, um, is we did something with um, some of our partners to actually help to resource type the CERT teams. So instead of of them them showing up and being these spontaneous, um, spontaneous volunteers as they still might be, we actually designed in partnership with some of the CERT leaders around the country what a qualified CERT team leader has to do to get qualified. You know, what a qualified cert logistics leader has to do to get qualified. What a quali- what a, what a cert operations expert needs to do qualified. So in a way, we kind of tried to give them the good housekeeping seal of approval to bring them into, to formalize them a little bit more, to formalize them a little bit more into the broader emergency management community. The, the trick there, and this is a bit like um, making, you know, mixing a drink is what I'll say, mixing a cocktail, um, is you don't want to, overtly, you know, you don't want to create too much bureaucracy around them because then the the ability for them to be spontaneous and to be flexible and to be volunteers, you'll dilute that. But what we're trying to do is, is as much as I can from my podium and for the first time in history, Administrator Criswell, our boss, she spoke at the National CERT Association Conference this past summer, really got the troops rallied up there. We're trying to communicate to local emergency managers that CERTs can really be force multipliers. And we saw them do that. Um, You know, I I think I'm a huge believer in any media format of of storytelling, and I want to be respectful of time and give Sean the opportunity. But one of the things that we did at the beginning of 2021 at FEMA when President Biden took office was to help states set up the, these community mass vaccination centers so we can get shots in arms for the COVID vaccine. And what we saw at some of these places, specifically in California and Texas, was you, you had people in certain communities that were, quite frankly, a little nervous about going to a government run facility to get a COVID shot, because especially in the African American community, there's not a great history there in this country of the government giving members of that community or tribal communities vaccines. They were told historically they were going to get vaccines. And actually what they were is that they were being used for medical experiments. So we knew that was going to be a challenge. So in addition to reaching out to those community-based organizations and those pastors and elsewhere to try and get our message out, something that brought tears to my eyes was, was I, I literally saw members of cert teams that were originally brought in, by emergency managers to help guide traffic, to help give out water bottles. They were taking a knee outside the perimeter of these mass vaccination centers and they were actually holding the hands of some of the people. And the people in the community knew them. People in that community had no idea who their local emergency manager was, most of them, absolutely no idea. But they knew their cert team lead, because he was a middle school teacher or he went to the same church or synagogue as you went to. Who do you think is going to have more community capital with that individual, the local emergency manager or the cert team leader in that, in that case? And it was that cert team leaders who in their personnel you saw taking a knee, holding hands, calming people down and helping to make them comfortable to come into that vaccination center to take a shot. Um, so I would say there is no perfect solution to bring all of these citizen first, I call them citizen responders or spontaneous responders um, into the broader emergency management, operation or management context. But what I would say is, what I tell our response personnel is keep the door open right? Or at least tell your state and local folks to keep the door open. You know, the Cajun Navy, for example, um, they pride themselves in their independence, right? You know, I, I I would never speak for them. You guys should try and get an interview with them. I'd love to listen to it. But, you know, they don't want to be, in most cases, integrated. I can't speak for all of them, but when I've dealt with them, they do not want to be integrated into one of our joint field offices or one of the operation centers. They pride themselves in that independence. Let's not fight that. Let's do what we can from the outside to, to embrace that and know that we're all playing for The same team. And I think if you're standing on the top of your house with your mother and your grandmother. And your house is sinking. You don't care if it's a coast, if it's a U.S. Coast Guard helicopter, a state trooper helicopter, or the Cajun Navy coming up on a boat to save you. Um, so I, I think it, there's no easy solution. But what we try and do here at headquarters is provide tools like that resource typing and be amplifiers when we see good practices taking place in one area of the country to bring it to others.
0: I think this is a fascinating conversation, <laughs> and I could sit here for hours and talk with
3: you guys about hey, man, all of this. It. I think. That's, that's <laughs> To look through
2: before I go home. sean has got resumes. Like we, we're having a great time here, guys. We can
3: go on for
2: hours. Yeah, the one comment I'll make. I know we've got to wrap up, but I, the one comment I'll add to to Aaron's comment is, you know, exercises and drills are excellent opportunities. Time back into the cert, right? And because yeah. those certs are led by those community leaders, right? And it provides those exercises and drills provide an opportunity for those certs to practice. For them to assess their skills within their community and also improve whatever emergency response plans they have and their on-the-ground operations, because all everybody that's being engaged is a volunteer, right? And these are folks that want to be there, that want to help their community, that want to serve their community. And and drills and exercises also help the CERT team refresh concepts and skills and things that they learn that are new. But to Aaron's point, when it when disaster happens, right? The cert members that they know and they see in their neighborhood that are all kitted out, that are digging folks out, that, that means more to them then the local emergency manager, again, he or she, or they may be sitting in office or whatever the case may be, but those are the folks that really matter, which are the folks that are on the ground and drills and exercises help build that capacity.
0: Definitely. And, and, and probably one last question I do want to ask, and it's something we ask a lot of, a lot of our guests and Aaron, I think you touched on this to, uh, to start with one of the, you know, one of the, the core reasons that Andrew and I started this podcast was because, you know, emergency management, working in disasters, it is not a formal industry. It is not something that that, you know, someone in kindergarten goes, like they say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, I want to be a disaster manager. I want to be an emergency management officer. You know, it's often, oh, I want to be uh, a doctor or a nurse, or I, I want to be a, a fire teacher man. or a fireman <laughs> or a fire person. But, you know, this notion of being in the disaster industry is not something that's mainstream. And, you know, many of our listeners may know, and people who do research on Andrew and I, we started as engineers and we stumbled into this, into this field of work. And, you know, we've grabbed it with both open arms and it's been one of the most fulfilling careers uh, that that, I can speak for myself that I've had. But just wanted to ask of of you guys, um, how did you guys end up in this field? And if there are young people out there, Listening to this podcast, or you know, trying to think about how they can get involved. What advice would you have for young Aaron or young Sean who you know might want to come into this industry and and give a hand?
2: Yeah, so I'll go. I'll go first and turn it over to Aaron. So you know, what got me started uh, in this industry is, is I began my career in the United States Army within the Department of Defense. Um, I served for 22 years, um, and this was just a part of the job that I did uh, within the Army. It was a special skill set but it was tied to emergency management. Um, and then once I retired, you know, I really wanted to do the full breadth of all hazards, emergency management and the full breadth of the field. Um, ultimately for me, it's always begun with selfless service. Um, I've always been inspired and motivated to serve something other than myself. Um, that is why I served in the United States Army and emergency management provided an avenue for me to continue to serve the community, serve my public um, and serve my country uh, in a way that You know, I could fulfill uh, post military service. Um, You know, the one thing I would say to anyone that has any interest, because we have folks from all different backs and walks of life, military, paramilitary, uh, within the core. within volunteerism, within the Peace Corps. I mean, they come from everywhere, right? But what I find in FEMA and I find in emergency management is everybody really wants to serve their community and serve something other than themselves. And that's the common thread that they have is really about serving others. Um, so anyone that's interested in the field that has a desire to serve others, you know, FEMA has outreach programs, whether that's within our faith, faith-based organizations within our community, whether that's through colleges and universities with a specific emphasis on historically black colleges and universities, it's really the strategic outreach and the mechanisms, and not just in the academic field. Uh, FEMA has a reservist core. We have a core program. And so there are a lot of folks that join FEMA, a part of being a reservist and volunteering their time. So there's many different avenues uh, to get into emergency management. And I would just continue with the outreach and the education of the broad opportunities that emergency management offers, because as Aaron said... We, we do do red skies days, but we spend a lot of time in the blue sky days. And if we do the work in the blue sky days, hopefully it will make our red sky days just a little bit easier and uh, and we can save lives. A,
3: I appreciate it. That's a hard act to follow, gents. Let, let me see if I can bring it in for a soft landing. Um, so I will, I'm a fellow member of you guys of the fraternity of falling into emergency manager. We should, we should get t-shirts made, sell them <laughs> online. Love yeah. them. Let, let us organize it. In, <laughs> in my non-government capacity, of course, for the record, and the lawyers who will review this podcast. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but, but, joking aside, you know, I um, was partially raised by my grandfather. I want to say his name, Phil Rubenstein. May his memory be a blessing. He was um, a lifelong public servant. Um, this This is a man who served his country in World War II. Uh, ended up going deaf uh, in both his ears he went hundred percent deaf in one ear not because of anything that happened in the war but because of I think a, a genetic issue and he had to wear a hearing aid in the other ear and he got a job with the Social Security Administration which is our federal uh, federal retirement insurance program here in the United States worked for the Social Security Administration for 30 years when everyone else retired and moved to Florida uh, when well, you could still <laughs> buy a place in Florida probably in flip, uh, you know it, uh, um, you know he then took Took a job for 30 more years with county government in the state of New Jersey. He helped to raise me, really inspired me of public service. Sean said it perfectly. I wanted to do something that was that was bigger than myself. Um, I had originally planned on going into the foreign service and, and serving at the State Department, um, and uh, for a variety of reasons, that did not come to fruition. And I literally fell into FEMA. Someone said, you know, um, Aaron, you used to work on Capitol Hill for a congressman. I heard FEMA has an opening for someone to be a liaison. One of our to um, to the Congress and I was like, "What does FEMA do?" <laughs> um, and, and that was twelve years ago. And here is where I find myself now, and, and I couldn't be happier with my career choice. Both serving as a division director at headquarters and serving on one of our national incident management assistance teams that goes out after in, in, in response mode after a disaster hits to help communities. Um, I would say this: if I am if I am twenty, if I could give advice to a twenty year old regardless of where they are, who they are, if they're in college, not in college, doesn't matter. This is what I would say to them on a 40,000 foot level, ex- try your best at whatever it is that you do. And I know that that's very 40,000 foot level, but if you get an internship at a local emergency manager and with your local emergency manager, be the best copy, make the best copies you can bring the hottest coffee you can do it. Well, because that's what people remember? Uh, and secondly, be a good writer. Number two, I think we do a lot of writing, whether you're here at headquarters or in the field, and learn, and this is probably a little US-centric, Jensen, I apologize for that, learn about grants. Because if you know how to to write a grant at the federal level, assess a grant at a federal level, and audit a grant um, at the federal level, even at the state and local level, um, that is going to pay huge dividends for you in your career. So do whatever it is you're asked to do well when you're starting off. You know, everybody makes copies at some point, gets coffee. (laughs) Um, be a good, you learn how to be a good writer. And if you're in the U S or maybe even in other countries, you know, learn how, I'm an old budget nerd um, learn where the funding comes from how to manage the funding and it's going to serve you really well in the future you Aaron said you've got to make my coffee. that's where you've got to start Andrew <laughs> usually <laughs> have a <usually laughs> <right. I'll> white <laughs> properly and I'll do
0: that
2: caramel macchiato caramel macchiato
3: yeah any, any time um, invite us out coffee's on me
1: <laughs> well it's been great chatting and I think we could as Josh said go on all day and, and discuss far more depth and I'd love to talk about more about the internet management stuff you do but we're out of time for today and I just wanted to say a massive uh, thanks to you both for joining us this morning or this afternoon in America for your time on the show. For our listeners that can find out more about this conversation today on our website, MeMyselfDisaster.com is the place to go for that or our YouTube channel to search for Me, Myself and Disaster. Aaron and Sean, thanks so much for joining us today on Me, Myself and Disaster. Thank you for having us. Yeah, Really loved it.
3: It's been a real pleasure. I get to work with a great colleague and always love meeting great people. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks. thanks.
0: That's all we have time for on the show today. Join us again next time as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then. Thanks for listening to Me, Myself and Disaster. Subscribe today at
2: memyselfdisaster.com.